was thinking as our brother read the passage in Hebrews that we've already had a, an exposition of the spiritual meanings of the tabernacle. Well, what could I do now? Here we've got an inspired man who has told you what the tabernacle stands for and certain of its essential features. So what I can do is just to point out one or two phases that need perhaps a little bit of an emphasis and leave it at that. In our hymn that we sang just now, speaking of the majesty of God, there was one little expression, whose canopy spake. Now the one who wrote that was a moderner, but even he lived years ago, so far as we are concerned, and when you speak of space today, with some knowledge of what it involves, it's utterly impossible for us to embrace the thought of the distance whose canopy space. And then there came into my mind another passage of scripture. His condescension hath made me great. The canopy is beyond our conception. His condescension is coming down is limiting himself, has made me great. So while we glory in the greatness of our Creator, we glory in the greatness indeed of our Redeemer. For without redemption, what is creation? Without redemption, what is the use of speaking of heaven? Without redemption, what about this pilgrimage through life? Well, I'm only saying, friends, what you already know. It's a part of our job here to repeat sometimes and bring to the surface that which we already know so that it shall never flag. And so I ask you to think again about this tabernacle. Turning to Exodus 26. <coughs> Exodus 26. Will indeed God dwell among men? Is a question asked. Will he? The heaven, and the heavens are not able to contain thee. How much more this house that I have built, we read in scripture. And even this house that we're going to look at this morning is not one of those marvels of architecture which still astonish us. Walk through the British Museum, South Kensington Museum, and see some of the masonry that has come from ancient Egypt or Babylonia. One of the pillars that hold up that pediment could hardly be got inside this space. Solid masonry. And when God chose the sanctuary, it was made up of sheets, hung on hooks, slid along rails, could be taken down, packed up, and a certain number of the tribes of Israel were allocated to just carry these bundles with them. That's the sort of dwelling place God chose for this world. And then another feature I think we do well to remember. You think of Finsbury Square. I don't know just exactly how far that coincides with the 
outside wall made of these sheets that enclosed the tabernacle. There was a square, and you entered by an entrance, and then in front of you was the tabernacle. But you think of that same square, and in the very centre is a box that would stand upon this table. Certainly it was covered with gold. But the whole of that tabernacle is concentrated upon that box. And that box was inside the inner tent and was only visited once a year by the high priest and nobody else. And that without blood. Why this conservation? Why this secret? Why, because that was the most precious section of the whole thing. Take that box away and you might as well pack up the tabernacle for it's in vain. That tabernacle was a dwelling place for God. And God is holy. He cannot look upon sin. It's his nature, it's his character, it's not possible. It's well for us to remember that the Almighty have some things he cannot do. And this is impressed upon us. Surely if God could have saved us by a stroke of a pen or a movement of his arm or any other power that he possessed, surely if God could have done that, he would not have sent his only son to come into this world of sin and die the ignominious death he did and shed his precious blood. It's very obvious that although we may know that sin is an abomination to the Lord, We've got no suggestion in our thoughts of what it must be. And when you come to think of not really one of us, but multitudes of us, then perhaps you begin to say, oh, I see. It's absolutely necessary. If God is to preserve his holiness, which if it's touched, well, the whole thing crumbles to pieces, then there must be this evidence and the evidence was given to the children of Israel in type and shadow, the tabernacle. And it was given us in reality when Christ tabernacled on earth for those brief years and put into practice what was set forth by type and shadow only in this uh, tabernacle in the wilderness. Well now this is called, if you look at chapter 26, I won't give you all the verses because uh, you could find them. It is called a sanctuary. The word tabernacle itself is rather uh, a be better word than it really stands for. For it really means a tent. It may be a very fine tent. It may be a gorgeous tent in colouring. But it's a tent. A tent. Something that can be packed up and taken away. Not permanent. Not like the great temples of which some of the monuments still stand that were built by Nebuchadnezzar and by Pharaoh. Not like that. A tent. Something very slight. He said, this is only a temporary dwelling place for me. But it has to have certain characteristics. And we want to look at those characteristics as time goes on. So I'm going to read a few verses from Exodus 26. Verse 1 to 6. Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine 
entwined linen. Elsewhere you'll read a statement that linen represents the righteousness of saints or the righteousness of the holy place. It must be linen. Not that I know anything about whether the difference between linen and cotton. I hear these things discussed sometimes, but I'm very, very careful not to know anything at all about these things, which is, of course, wise, perhaps, on my part. But here it says, must be linen, fine twine linen. Moreover, thou shalt make a tabernacle, the curtains of fine twine linen, and blue, and purple, and scarlet. Well, that's not blue by itself. The fine twine linen is dyed blue, and purple, and scarlet. And we shall discover that they have a significance. And then we have further, the height of one curtain should be, uh, should be eight and twenty cubits. The length, I'm sorry, the height of it. And the breadth of one curtain, four cubits. And every one of the curtains shall be, have one measure. I won't go through all the details, you can read them, but there's uh, something specific about this. Nothing is left to chance or human imagination. See that thou make all things, said God to Moses, according to the pattern shown thee in the mount. And if we retranslate those words for ourselves, see that when you speak of Christ and his finished work, see that you use the terms that God has written and not invent a great number that you think may be better. They're not. For God knows best why he sent his son and what he did. And it would be wise to spend time and time and time to make his word speak rather than help ourselves out by speaking in our own language. So here we have. It says in verse 3, the five curtains shall be coupled together, one to another. Coupled together. Later on in the New Testament, we have coupled together, but it now is not with hooks and eyes, but it's the unity of the Spirit. It's not possible for us to belong to Christ, to be redeemed by his precious blood, to have been saved by grace from sin and made accepted in the beloved to be all disjointed and separated. We belong to one company and we are being built together a habitation of God in spirit. So they're coupled together. Uh, the other five curtains shall be cut, coupled one to another. And so it goes on and tells you all these interesting details which I leave you to consider. So we have here a sanctuary. And then we have in uh, the next thing the meaning of a tabernacle. Will you turn to the second Samuel seven seven chapter second Samuel that's not very far beyond the books of Moses. Second Samuel, chapter 7. Verse 2 and 6. 
supposed to be read verse 1. And it came to pass when the king sat in his house and the Lord had given him rest round about from all his enemies. But the king said unto Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar. In a sense we can sympathise with this king. He said, look at these surroundings that I have. I've got a, I've got a palace. But we've still got just that temporary tent for God to dwell in. God has given me rest round about, and the king said unto Nate and the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar. But the ark of God dwelleth within curtains. So what is he intending? Well, he's intending that something should be done. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in thy heart, for the Lord is with thee. And it came to pass that night that the word of the Lord came unto Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David. Thus saith the Lord, Shalt thou build me a house to dwell in? Whereas I have not dwelt in any house since the time that I brought up the children of Israel out of Egypt, even in this day, but have walked in a tent and in the tabernacle. And so God goes on to say, it cannot be. This is a purpose that I have. I shall dwell in a temple beyond description, but not here. In this world, you and I together are pilgrims journeying home. And I believe that's just as true of us as it was of Israel, although the accompaniments and the journeys and the associations and the object in view may have slight differences. Our callings are just are different, but the character is the same. Here we have no continuing city, but we seek one to come. If we are given respite from troubles, if we do not find oppressors reigning over us, then we be thankful. But whatever comes, this is not our rest. The rest that remaineth is waiting for that glorious day. And so we have in that term, those verses, and finishing up, um, uh, look at verse 10 and 11. Over, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness affect them any more as before time. And as since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused them to rest from all thine enemies, also the Lord telleth thee that he will make thee a house. So go, the story goes on, I leave it with you to continue. Well then we have, not only this so, but right down to the 14th verse, this way in which the Lord remonstrated and showed his purpose in connection with still living in a tent. Suppose you think of Finsbury Circus, Finsbury Square. I'm not perfectly certain for the moment 
just the size of the outside fence that was built with curtains to enclose the tabernacle. Well, it, it won't matter to us. We haven't got to build it. It was something like Finsbury Square. And if you said to somebody, or somebody said to you, now what's the idea of enclosing this square? Or you say there's something very, very precious and sacred there. Well, he says, what is it? Well, he says, can you see in the centre? Well, all I can see is there's a small box. Uh, well, well, he says, well, I can see it. It looks as though it's gilded or it's shining. He says, that's it. That's it. But in the day when the tabernacle was built, you couldn't point it out. That was in the holiest of all, into which no one entered except the high priest once a year and not without blood. That whole construction was built round that ark of the covenant in which was the unbroken law. The tables of stone, unbroken. Aaron's rod that budded. A priesthood entirely different from any that ever came afterwards. And a pot of manna, a little gracious emphasis on the fact that not merely heaven itself is in God's mind, but the pilgrim journey there, and the incense. And then on top of that, a golden lid. And that golden lid was called the mercy seat. And there, he says, I will meet with thee. Of course, we, it would be silly for us to say, somebody says, where do you meet on Sundays? Oh, we meet at the chapel of the open book. That would be quite legitimate. But strictly speaking, friends, if you only meet in the chapter of the open book, you might as well stop at home. For unless we meet where God intended these people should meet, but not round a box called an ark, but round a person called Christ, if he is not central, then we've had a few hymns to sing, we've sat and listened to someone speaking, but the reality would be missing. So let us for a moment remember, remember with prayer, that the very centre of God's dealings with the people of Israel were enforced by the making of this tabernacle, that it concentrated right the way through all its various symbols and signs to that Ark of the Covenant. As I said, visited by only one man, the High Priest, once a year, not without blood. Surely you couldn't do much more to impress upon a people the seriousness of entering into the presence of God. You and I are looking forward to be one day there at his right hand, presented, but not there on our own account. We're only there because he loved us and gave himself for us and said, where I am, there shall you be also. So I know I'm speaking to those to whom all that I'm saying is what they know already. But it doesn't do any harm sometimes to have it refreshed. And I've never heard anybody say, well, I had breakfast last week. You're going to give me some this week. Well, we need it day by day. And so here we have this stress. God's temporary dwelling place. Although 
this canopy is spice. He condescends to come down and be a tent dweller and walk with us through the wilderness of this world. But never without that ark. Never without that picture of Christ crucified, risen and ascended. We'd have to look at the ark itself in detail, but you remember it was not only a golden lid, but it had peculiar figures on the top called the cherubim, and they have their place. One of the things to remember is that the whole affair was not very beautiful from outside. Not very attractive. It wouldn't have, it wouldn't have drawn great deal of attention except looking across the sands of the desert there was an encampment, that's all it looks like. That which was essential was inside. Closely guarded. Blessed by God to their consolation. The five million, we are told, I quote from the book of the Revelation now without turning to the passage, five million is the righteousness of Satan. And the word saint can also be the holy place. So the book of the Revelation is looking back to the construction of the tabernacle, which was only a shadow, and says the five million is the righteousness of the holy place. Unless a person is righteous, he'll never get there. But inasmuch as we know we are not righteous in ourselves, not one of us, we may be tolerably decent people. We pay our way. We wouldn't uh, think of cheating anybody. But there's a depth in righteousness which we can never reach. But Christ is our righteousness. We have been justified by faith through him. And so, the white, the white linen, which is the righteous requirements of the holiest of all, is all right. We need not fear. And then we go on further. The blue, when you look at Exodus 28-31, because it there speaks about the blue. Exodus 28.31 You see the colours are not merely to make it pretty they have a symbolism they have a meaning 28.31 And thou shalt make the robe of the ephod all of blue and it tells you about its construction. All of blue. For we associate blue particularly with heaven. There are colours on the earth which are green or golden or brown and sometimes alas black. But you don't get blue very insistent except at sea or in the sky. But the sky dominates. Without the clouds, what a blue it is, friends. I don't know whether you've ever sat down with a box of paints and tried to make a sketch. I don't know which you put the colour blue on your paper. You think, oh dear, oh dear. Here's something which is as far as I can get. But what a colour that is. What an intensity of light there is in it. What a depth there is in it. 
So all of blue, this ephod that was worn by the priest. Now what about purple? I won't turn into the passage, but the book of Esther shows you the hangings of the place. Purple, the presence of a king. We speak about people in the purple, even today, not realising we are referring to a passage here. This is royalty. So we have heaven in the blue, royalty in the purple, and scarlet. Scarlet. Let's get one passage for that. The book of Joshua, chapter 2, verse 18. And see the symbolism there that was recognised. Joshua follows Deuteronomy, you remember, 2.18. And you remember the story. I just pick out the verse. Oh, have I got it right? Joshua 2.18. Is that right? Yes. Oh, yes. Um, Behold, when we come into the land, then thou shalt bind this line of scarlet thread in the window, uh, which thou didst let us thou bind. And thou shalt bring thy father, and thy mother, and thy brethren, and all thy father's household home with thee. And it shall be, that whosoever shall go out to the door of thy home into the street, his blood shall be upon his head, and we will be guiltless. Well, there's the protection then of a scarlet thread. And why a scarlet thread? Well, that represents the precious blood of Christ. There's no way of avoiding judgment and destruction by unless we're protected. But how slight it might look. Just a scarlet thread. But that one offering made by Christ, the shedding of that blood, was more effective than all the blood of bulls and goats on Jewish altars slain. And it was therefore right in the very centre of this tabernacle which God instructed his people to erect. Well then we have other places. We have goats and we have rams and we have badger skins. I don't think I will turn to those for the moment. They will come up before us in other phases. And then we have um, the wood that was used. Chicken wood as apparently not a very good sort of timber, but it's got one characteristic about it. It's called incorruptible. I don't say that it would last forever, but it's got that character, that while other gets worm-eaten and subject to rot, this goes on. The wood represents the earthly, the human uh, life of Christ. It was just wood, simple but it was incorruptible. But it was all covered with gold, and all the gold represents 
is heavenly glory. So here we have these types and symbols waiting for him to come to fill them out. But blessed be God if we know something about it. And then finally, I think perhaps we ought to look at Exodus 30 and finish. Exodus 30. And this time, verses 11 onwards. Exodus 30, 11 onwards. Uh, no, I think I've got the wrong passage there again, friends, for some reason, but will you turn to chapter 38? Uh, and it may be that I've misled myself, so I won't try to mislead you. You have to forgive me sometimes. 38.25 And the silver of them that were numbered of the congregation was at hundred talents, thousand seven hundred and three score and fifteen shekels after the shekel of the sanctuary. They all paid this redemption money. We don't pay redemption money, but we do put our trust. There is something we do when we put our trust in Him. And finally, the passage that I want to find, but I'll leave it now. In spite of all that splendour, in spite of all that wonderful weaving and designing and the dyeing of the colours, it says the veil of the temple that was even more great, gorgeous than the tabernacle. The veil of the temple was rent in twain. But who did it? From top to the bottom. And I think you're told it took so many yoke of oxen to tear that temple if they, that if they wanted to do it themselves. This was an act of God. And that has a purpose. That has a place. But I think, Joy, we ask you to be satisfied with what I've done. I haven't done very much, friends, because, you see, we've got an inspired comment in the Epistle of the Hebrews which has run through this and told you what it is. I've simply stood up here and reminded you. But if, I remi- if I've reminded you in some way of one thing, that nothing matters, it doesn't matter what the colours stand for, it doesn't matter what the size was, it doesn't matter who the men were, if that centre, that ark, was not there, as instructed by God, it was all in vain. And it doesn't matter all over again if Christ has not offered himself an accepted sacrifice for sin, we're still of all most miserable.